Any prayer requests? Mary and John? Yeah. I want to, um, as soon as we start our prayers, I want to, I have a couple of general reflections that I want to offer on the consolation. It's not a part of my notes, it's it's larger perspectives that I want to get at. I'm afraid I'm going to forget them. Do you have a pencil, Doc? My mind is so going. God. Thanks. Um, any prayer requests? A prayer request for Neville Maitland, who's gone through a lot of chemotherapy and radiation and thought he was in remission and now he's back in chemo. So he has... Um, Say his name, Neville? Neville, Neville. Maitland. Yes. How old is he? In his early 50s. Oh, he's young. Neville, anybody else? Mary's sister Carol, who has lung cancer, and her brother Stephen, who has bladder cancer. Well. Carol? Carol. It's Mary's sister? Mm-hmm. Is this newly discovered? Is this no, she's had it for a while. She's, yeah. she's terminal. Uh, she's got a few months. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. My brother just finished six weeks of chemotherapy and. You know, the family. Waiting to see the results. He has to go in for some checkup, follow up. And, uh, <coughs> he had a double lung transplant about uh, wow. 19 years ago. And because of all the autoimmune suppression mm-hmm. drugs they got to take, uh, that leaves them susceptible to yeah, absolutely. stuff like that. Yeah, wow. everything. Pay me now or pay me later. He's actually one of them lived uh, double lung transplant. I was going to say, it's actually amazing. To, um, science is such a paradoxical thing. <clears throat> Very often it cures the septus. So anyway. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us. Um, You remind us, and Father did in his homily, in his reflections, that um, we're not slaves. Um, you, You ask the disciples to see you as a friend because slaves don't know what their masters do. And God, you made everything clear to them that you received from the Father. If there were any questions about who the Father was before you came, um, less now. Um, He's revealed through you. Um, What a great wonder, Um, a gift to all of us. Strengthen us in our efforts to be your friend, um, to take seriously um, all that you do a friend of Aristotle, a friend is another self, it's another self, it's part of who we are. A friend dies, it's like we die. If, if our friendship is genuine, um, a great part of us goes. Um, strengthen each of us um, to give ourselves fully to being your friend, to walk beside you, to know your presence, to keep you with us, to bring you to all that we do. Help us to grow in a friendship with you, to make your love more real in what we do. Ask for a special blessing on Carol and Stephen. 
Um, particularly, I gather Carol, um, watch over both of them, um, heal them, if it's to be, if our faith can move that way, heal them. If not, console them, be with them, let the ordeal that they're in strengthen them in their faith. Um, let them know that these moments of being crushed in our lives, either by illnesses or by our own sins, um, that when we face our sins starkly, truly, um, it's a way of coming to the cross to you, of, of knowing just how deeply we need you. Um, help us in all these ordeals. Watch over Carol and um, Stephen. Um, that everything that happens um, help them grow in their faith, become stronger in their faith. Um, watch over Neville. Um, um, surround him with your care as well. And for each of those three individuals, strengthen um, all those who surround them, that they will know a comfort in friends. Um, help their friends to be good friends. Um, watch over John and Mary. Be with Mary and um, her chemo. Um, um, both of them are so solid in their faith. Um, as strong as they are, um, let this be a time of growing um, even closer to you um, for both of them. Um, ask for a blessing on all the work that we're doing together. Help us to take it to heart, to make it real in our lives. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, two, two very brief <coughs> thoughts for everybody this morning. <coughs> I hadn't had this first thought in my mind, but I, I want to offer it because I think it's, it's just surprisingly good, I think. <laughs> when I was walking out of the, our room Monday night and going to the office to get books, Chester, um, who sometimes plays the drums or used to in the, in the, with the choir, who's been in the group now, he and his wife have joined the last year, and was 10 feet behind me, and, he, and I heard the word suddenly, how do you put it, easier read, Bob, easier read. Because I think he struggled some with the literature. It's just, um, and I was so glad that. And then I, so I waited for him, and he came up, and I said, "Flesh that out, some. What do you, why do you?" And he, he was struggling, but it certain it suddenly occurred to me. You know why? I mean, it's such an obvious thing. And I, and if you know me at all, I don't like overlooking obvious things. I don't like taking them for granted. One, one of my greatest teachers said to me, "Don't overlook the obvious." I so believe that that the most important things are right in front of us. You know that that's been one of the aims of the course. The most important things are right in front of us and we don't see them. That, that's how blind we are. As soon as he said it, I, I immediately knew what he meant. When you're doing literature, when you're reading a poem or a work like Dante or certainly Paradise Lost or the Iliader, it, it asks of us an act of interpretation. We have to, till we have faces. We have to put things together. The beauty of literature is, I've said this before, it takes us back to concrete experience. We're back in the world again. We're not in a world of ideas. We enter a concrete world just like the world we're inhabiting now. Except that concrete experience has, has been formed to a vision. It's taking us somewhere. It's revealing something. Just like life does if our eyes are open. 
but it always asks us to think about what's going on and put the form together. Um, it's not just a meaningless series of actions. There's a meaning to everything that goes on. The, the artist had to select those things. We know that if he'd selected something that didn't belong, it would be like a carbuncle on a face. It would just be a huge anomaly. Everything belongs because everything is serving a purpose. It's going to something, some end. But it, it, it asks that we put it together. There's something of that going on in Boethius. But the difference is, this is philosophy. It's all expository statement. It's a dialogue, so it has the feel of a piece of literature. But it's, it's philosophic statement. Boethius is dealing with, explicitly, consciously, with a level of ideas. In literature, that's not so. There's nobody there saying, this is what it means, this is your nature, this is where you should be going. You get that in philosophy, you don't get that in literature. So the book is much more straightforward than anything we've been reading. It, it, it unfolds, so when you're reading it, I assume you're feeling you know, the simplicity, the directness of it. Whereas in a work of literature, we're back in the concrete world and sometimes mystified, and we have to keep asking what's going on, what does this mean? And don't forget there's an element of that to Boethius. I, I'm, otherwise I wouldn't be, I, or I wouldn't need to be here. I th think there are things that I can show you about it that are um, like literature. They're implied, they're buried, they need to be brought out, but it reads more simply. It's a much easier read. So um, I'm, I'm assuming you've all felt that as you're reading it. It's, it's just a little bit easier in that way. The second thing is this, and it's a little bit harder to get to, but I, I hope to bring it out as we go through it. I can't read this. I haven't read this in like so many of the works that we do. I haven't read this in ages, eight ages. Um, when I was going through it the other day and, and saying to Suzanne, she really should read it because I, 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 you haven't. Have you? Yeah. yeah. I was saying she should read it because I was really enjoying it again a lot, just thinking about what's going on. And she reminded me of something that I'd forgotten, that when Thomas um, started college, he was a philosophy major. He didn't complete the That's major. The <laughs> but um, I'd forgotten <coughs> that when he was a philosophy major, he, um, he said this was his favorite book. I'd forgotten that. And when she said that, it, it, I, and I was putting the two things together, I, I think I know why. Um, because it doesn't read like philosophy. If you read Heidegger, Kant, Descartes, you're in a world of ideas. In Consolation, we're in a dramatic model or a dialogue, just as we are in the Platonic dialogues. It's a, it's a drama. And at the root of it is this problem of suffering. Why God allows people to suffer. More, important, more importantly, why does he allow good people to suffer and be actually persecuted and allow evil people to prosper. That's the Job problem. How, how can a good God allow this stuff? I think that's why, because he was becoming conscious enough of um, suffering at that point in his life that, that this spoke directly to so much that was a part of his own life by that time. So... Um, the, the work deals um, with these fundamental, ultimate questions. Why does God allow suffering? Why does, how can a good God allow evil? 
explain that? Why did just men suffer and, in, and evil men prosper? Um, those are fundamental to our existence. Um, one of the interesting things to think about when you put this together is this. Boethius is writing six centuries after Christ. He's looking ahead to Dante. He, he doesn't know Dante's going to write. I mean, he can't anticipate what's coming after him. The What makes this book so important is that it synthesizes so many of the really important traditions in the pagan world. He's read everything of Aristotle, everything of Plato. He wanted to translate them, and but was put in jail, so he couldn't. But he knows them. So in the Consolation, the beauty of that book is that he takes those two traditions and other traditions as well and synthesizes them. So he, he brings most of the key points in Aristotle and Plato. I think I'm exaggerating that a bit, but... So many of the seminal points of Aristotle and Plato into this little work. Um, and it gets passed on. If you've read Shakespeare, you, you know that Shakespeare could not have done what he did without this. That's how important. You get references, allusions. When you go through, I can't read this without thinking of Beth and Lear and other heroes. Shakespeare certainly could not have written those plays without this. Um, the same thing was true with Dante. You know that Dante refers to him. Um, Boethius wrote one of the most important tracts on the Trinity in the Middle Ages. So he's, he's fixed centrally in the middle of the Middle Ages, well past the um, beginnings of Christianity and also all at the same time looking forward to the high Middle Ages when St. Thomas did so much of his work and we reach really the perfection of the Middle Ages I think before the Renaissance begins. And but one of the things I don't want you to miss is this. What One of the things that seems to me that stands out in this book is the spirit of Stoicism that's been an aspect of Christianity from the beginning. Lady Philosophy is telling him to knock it off, to stop whining. If he would only get his emotions under control, he'd be okay. And you know that the Stoic tradition, which was assimilated into Christianity, takes the position that the um, the great problem in our, the lives of most of us are our emotions, is our emotions. If we could control our emotions, our lives would be better. But we're so susceptible to fears, desires. They set up these disturbances in the soul. So the stoic position was the best thing to do was stuff them, deny them. There's a platonic element running through that. I believe that it's deeply a part of the Protestant world. And I'll try to make that clear shortly. Um, but there's this strong, strong Stoic element that in, enters Christianity that's very much a part of our tradition. And you can see it really clearly here in this book. Um, I just want to point that out because I, I think it'll become obvious once you get to this point, but it's good to see that. Um, the question that I want to pose about that going into the book is what do we do with our emotions? What's the final answer of lady philosophy? on this issue. Because remember, this is not a Shakespearean drama. This is a work of philosophy. So the most important thing for Boethius is, is if you order your mind okay, if you're doing what you should to take care of your mind, it should take care of problems with your emotions. Now I'm just going to throw that out because I want to come back to that later. Um, what do we do with the emotions then? 
you know, is it is, in fact, he's going to even say the, the most important thing is get your mind straight on things because if you do everything else, it'll follow. Easier said than done. I know, I know. I, I, I saw that look on your face a minute ago, David. So, we'll, we'll, I'm going to. We're going to look at. We're going to look at a passage where he says something explicitly to that effect. I don't want to go into it a lot today, but I want to raise that problem because it's a serious one, I think, for this book because I think this is a, a great book in the middle of the Middle Ages. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Quick review. Looking back, um, what I thought about some of the principles that we took out of our work on Milton and Dante, I wanted to leave everybody with what I believe are four fundamental truths that I think are important for our faith. One of them is um, corruption, for both Milton and Dante, corruptions were rife. In the eyes of both men, the corruption, the, the 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 stench coming up from the church was sickening. They were both horrified. One of them responded to those things by by dismissing the Catholic Church. The other by criticizing it. Um, so it's two radical different ways of dealing with corruptions. One of the most important things that I think we can see about all of this is this. Corruptions in themselves can never, never justify changing the dogmas of the church. That's never an answer. It's like trying to make a head fit a hat. It is. You don't, you don't change the nature of the church. You, you do something to reform the practices of the church by dealing with the people. If you start fooling around with the dogmas of the church, you're, changing the, you're, you're fooling around with Christ. Corruptions can never justify changing dogmas, ever. That's not the cause of corruptions. The cause of corruptions can be the, the priesthood, the, you know, the people. I mean, the sources can line a variety of ways. All of the great reforms of the church came in response to problems of worship. The early, the early problems were always dealing with schismatic, heretical things, Arianism, Sabellianism. Nestorianism and whatever the particular heresy happened to be, they were all trying to get straight on the nature of Christ. Um, corruptions is another thing. We've got corruptions in our church today. That, that I, I mean, I know people, some people want to leave. I myself would never leave this church. There's not a way in the world. Um, I, I don't care how deep the stench is. This is the real church. Um, the answer is do something with the corruptions. You know, when the Pope sent out that letter a couple of weeks ago saying that, how did he put it? There would be no movement on sexual abuse stuff. There would be no leeway. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance, thanks. Yeah. Um, he was taking a stand. I, sorry, he didn't take it a year ago. But, you know, I mean, the church has been reacting to these sexual abuse things for a couple of years now. Pretty seriously, I mean, that. Like decades. Mc, yes. McCarran, <laughs> what was his name? The, yeah. Who was defrocked? I mean, the church. The oh, church is doing what it should do. It's answering corruptions. <clears throat> the church will always be dealing with corruptions, because it's um, it's full of human. Um, the only person who is incorrupt in the church is Christ, and it's important for us to remember the church is Christ. It's not an artificial thing. 
It is the body of Christ. It is Him. If you start walking away from the church in some sense, give them the faith of it, you're walking away from Him. So one is, corruptions can never justify changing dogmas. There are fundamental differences between the, the Protestant reformers and the Catholic Church. Most of them, as you know, changed dogmas, the nature of Christ, the nature of the Eucharist, sacraments, they took them away, the priesthood, things like that. All of those things struck at the very nature of the Church itself and Christ. Taking away the sacraments took away the Christ's efficacy in the world today. Um, it, it made of the church a political institution. It took supernatural realities and temporalized them, brought them down and redefined them in the world's terms. If I can use an example, it reminds me, remember in the passage in the Bible where Christ is saying, unless you eat, unless you drink? In that biblical passage there, it describes some of the disciples walking away. And I think the description was, the, the teaching was too hard for them. You know, um, the Jews up until that time um, um, were forbidden to drink blood or have anything to do with blood. Um, that was a serious practice for them. That, that I mean, for centuries and centuries. So for Christ to say, "Drink my blood," had to horrify them. Had to horrify them. They walked away. Well. Think about that group. What they did was continue to, because they'd known Christ up to that point. Whatever they thought about him, they confined him to their own minds. Instead of moving with him, they turned away because the teaching was too hard. So some of the differences that, that were set in motion in the Reformation are still with us today. Um, turning away from the authority of the church, the, the sacraments like that. I said a number of times that to be Catholic means universal. That's what it means. Purity of spirit was a major issue during some of our talk. Purity of spirit cannot be, cannot be racial, cannot be Greek. I was raised, cannot got Serbian, Russia. Every region can have its own ethnic identity, but Catholicism, if it means anything, it means it's steeped in a people, ethnic people, national people, whoever it is. But the faith raises them above that to link them with everybody else in the world. We're all God's children. Nothing should separate us. Not our national heritage, not our ethnic heritage. We can be Italian, we can be Greek, doesn't, Turkish, doesn't matter. But our faith unites us to everybody else, whatever the racial national differences are. I grew Greek Orthodox. I, I mean, I don't want to go there, but the Greek world stays close to itself. It's just that natural ethnic racial touchiness that people within a certain race have. Um, to, to be Catholic means to be one with everybody. So purity of spirit can never be racial. It cannot be national, Anglican, Episcopal. The faith is above those things. Um, it can't be sexual, not just for men or just. You know. Paul says, "This is stunning. No more, no more female, no more male. Remember, no slave, no. We are one. That's at the heart of our Catholic faith. And the notion of infallibility. I mean, I hope this is clear. 
if you watch what happened in the early church um, councils dealing with Arian, particularly Arianism, that was one of the greatest threats to the church, but always, um, the church has always been dealing with schismatic forces, heresies. Um, the, the, the infa- when, when Christ gave Peter the keys and that scene where he says, who do people say I am? We've gone over that a number of times. He was conferring this extraordinary power on Peter and the church. Why did Christ do that? I mean, if anybody would have known, it would have been God. Because if anybody knew the threats to the church, what they would be, it would be him. Take away that authority and imagine, imagine a church dealing with Arianism, the Reformation, changing the sacraments, doing away the priesthood. The, the Pope does not use infallibility except in rare instances. And all of them, to my knowledge, I mean, there may have been stupid because I mean the church has done stupid things over the years but the infallibility only comes in rarely and it deals with um, matters of dogma Um, but imagine a church without that how it could stand in the world how it would answer the problems that we bring to our faith so um I know that that's a big issue for lots of people. It isn't for me. Um, and I think I'm, I'm probably as likely to be as critical of a pope as anybody. I'm, I'm with Dante. When I, you know, I watch Dante put all these popes in hell, I just, all I can say is, good for you, do it again. <laughs> I'm being a little bit facetious here, but anyway. So just four, four principal points to take away from our work on the Reformation from going back to Dante and watching the two of them struggle with the corruptions in the church. Okay? And I remember saying to everybody when we first started this, if you look at what happened in Dante's time um, and then at Milton's, you know that the corruptions have been consistent. Um, interesting point, um, and I just want to underscore it here. Um, <coughs> When we did our work on Dante, and we covered some of the conflicts in the church, lay investiture, remember because the king could invest priests and bishops even, and the imperial power actually um, chose popes. That's how um, incestuous we were, intertwined with the political world. The, the, The church and state were so involved with each other intermixed with each other. Um, sorry, I need to take the coffee and dump it because we won't be in pipes to dump it into. Um, does anybody want more? This is a, literally a coffee break. Water <laughs> <laughs> still on. Yeah.
I think I've mentioned this book by Bishop Barron, Robert Barron, who did that um, TV series called Catholicism. It was a 10-disc series. It's a wonderful presentation of the church. It, it's truly beautiful because what it does is it, it works off of a background of church architecture, certain cathedrals and churches all over the world, and music. It, it shows what an extraordinary rich past we have. Um, but he's written a, um, a number of books um, with very short essays. They're two or three page essays. They're really fine. You're, you're watching a, 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 a man with a very fine intellect look at the contemporary world at, at a popular, at a level of popular culture. So he looks at movies, works of art, lectures that are being given. Um, he talks about, um, I think, two of Obama's talks. I think one was at Notre Dame and the other one was at Georgetown, I think. Very critical of both Catholic schools because they caved in under Obama. I thought good for him. So he just takes on popular culture and is trying to find God at work. It, it's a wonderful collection. One of them is called Seeds, Seeds, and the other one is called, I think, Exquisite Paradoxes by Robert Barron, Bishop Barron. Really fine. In one of them, he's 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 dealing with, I think, what must have been what happened in a church that reached the news media. And I think the Kennedys or somebody walked out of a mass because of something. Uh, and Barron was critical. And I, I wish I, I don't have it, but the, but the point he was making is it's important never to forget that the church is Christ. And it's not to say priests don't do stupid things, because well, they, they do. Um, I think I gave you that quote from Flannery O'Connor when we read her a year ago. Be careful of priests, um, wolves in sheep's clothing. I mean, that was tough, mighty Catholic, pretty tough. Uh, be careful of those guys. Um, <clears throat> the, the church is Christ. We can't separate them. People are going to do stupid things. We do stupid things. I hope... Most of her not above admitting that, that there's something deeply wrong. Certainly I know that with myself. I'm assuming most of us know it. But Quickly, to go back to this, just to give you a sense of, of how important the struggle between church and state was and, and where we arrived at some point in that struggle. <clears throat> because, Dante, as I've argued, it, it comes to a pitch during Dante's time. With the, the development of those communes, those first commercial republics, and and the attempt on the on the part of people to gain their independence from both the emperor and the church, so that whatever decisions they made came from choice, not because they were compelled to do it, because they grew up thinking a certain way. Don, can you get that? Somebody's. Um, early on in the church in the 4th and 5th centuries the church was fighting against what then were called the Donatists or Donatists a group of people who believed that unless a priest was pure it made um, he made the sacraments invalid you know that's an old argument in the church, and um, 
I think Augustine fought against them. And he said, um, the church can never depend on that. It can't rest on the purity of its people or we'll never have a church. That just because a man is in sin doesn't make the sacraments invalid. It does mean something should, maybe you have to reach a point where you do something with a priest. Um, we came back to that same quarrel just before Dante. I remember going over this. Remember, Peter Damien, which was one of the important characters that Dante met in the Paradiso, Peter Damien and a man named um, Humpert quarreled over the same issue, except then it had to do with simony, selling of church offices. And um, the issue then was, can a priest um, give the sacraments and have them valid if he's in sin? Same thing. Both men took very, very different positions. Um, it finally got resolved. But you remember it's during that period that lay investiture comes under the control of the church, where it should be. Because if kings, um, kings invest priests, priests are under the control of the king. We already know from Thomas's More situation how likely priests are to give in to state powers anyway. Everybody in, everybody in England caved in under Henry. Under Henry. Under Henry. So, lay investiture was a huge source of problems within the church. It was, it, it focused the corruptions at that time. And one of the things that came out of that period um, was um, it involved Pope Gregory VII because he was the one that instituted a number of decrees that made it impossible for the king to invest priests and bishops. Okay. They could serve him as, um, as their king. They could be vassals to the king, but their first obedience was to the church. So remember, it's during that time that the church reaches a point where it's virtually separated out from the state. Church and state powers, the great accomplishment of the church up to that time, I think, is separating itself from the state. And that's why the... the um, the coming into existence of these commercial regimes was so important because it helped reinforce that effort. The fact that people were no longer indebted to the emperor or the church meant they could make their choices about their faith freely. That's the beginning of the commercial republic. Remember, we've talked about that. The commercial republic comes into existence then. That's the prototype of America. That's what we are. So that comes into an existence at a really crucial time. But the, just to repeat this, the corruptions have always been there. We still have them. So um, lots of things were going on in the church then. They're still going on today. Um, okay, to oh yes. I'm not a historian, so I can't speak in any great detail about what's going on, but a couple of things that are worth knowing. Um, um, Rome has never been at ease with imperial authority. It never was. You know that the, the, the reason, one of the reasons Shakespeare took the Julius Caesar play is because it marked that point when Rome was attempting to recover its commercial republic, republican character. Um, remember that, that Rome became a republic and got rid of emperors, Caesars. That's why they killed Caesar, because they wanted to recover that republican freedom that's always been so important to Rome. 
Um, Theodoric was an Ostrogoth king who was the king of Italy by conquest. Um, and there was a tension between the Senate and um, Theodoric. And the king was concerned about um, threats from the Senate. He exiled one of the senators, and that the, the senator that he did exile accused Boethius of having betrayed the king as well. That was a trumped-up charge. It was a lie. It was a way of, 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 of the way some of the men in the Senate wanted to get rid of Boethius because he was just such a, a virtuous man. He's the kind of man like Socrates who would have caused problems. So he got accused of treason and was sentenced unjustly. So when we get to Constellation of Philosophy, we're we're getting to a real fact in the results of these corruptions going on in the Senate in Rome. It, you'll, you know that from the reading. He, 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 go, he goes into great detail about what happened in the Senate. That he defended the Senate. It was his principle. Because the Senate was the principle of Republican government under a king. So he was a great defender of that principle and, and gets taken down for it. One other just background piece of information. Remember that we're close to the Arian controversy. And there are a number of heresies that have come out of the East historically over and over again. Um, and the only way that I can put it is the East tends to be otherworldly, always has been. Always has been. The West tends to be thisworldly. If you look at the heresies, Arianism came out of the East. Um, monarchalism came out of the East. It's the East attempt to hold on to the absolute power of the Father. The, the, that is the other world. So in some ways, the, the effect of those heresies undermines Christ, taking on our human nature and entering the world. Okay? So there's this other world tendency in the East. They're always, if you look at their artwork, it's always geometric. If you've looked at the icons in the East, those of you who were here yesterday to celebrate you know, Emma's time with us. She's leaving. She had, she had an exhibition of all of her icon, iconic work. You know what I'm talking about. I, the iconic, the geometric. If you look in an Eastern Orthodox Church, the icons are always geometric. They're not naturalistic. They're not representational. Because to the East, that's a sin or a danger. They've always turned away from naturalism because and, and supported iconic art because in their mind, the whole point of, of Christ was to take us to the other world, to not get caught up in this world. So you've got that iconic art. That was a great controversy then. Arianism was still an issue. Um, it divided lots of communities. The two of the most important sees in the world at that time were Rome and Constantinople. And they were divided on these ideological differences, these different ways of looking at things. So the real tensions between the Western Church and, the, and specifically the Greek Orthodox Church. There were um, Greeks in the south of Italy who were asked to conform their rights to the Western ways. They resented it. Um, it created real tensions. So there are lots of tensions between the Western and Orthodox and principally Greek Orthodox worlds then. And you know, this is 6th century, um, 11th century, that the churches are going to split. That's the 11th century, 1054 is when the Orthodox Church split off. 
um, there were always tensions, political tensions, cultural tensions. The theological issue was the um, filioque, but and um, I almost hesitate. Let me just offer this word. If you know anything about that debate, you know that um, the issue is that in the Western Church, the theological understanding is that the the Holy Ghost, the Son's proceeds from the Father. He proceeds from him. He, he's conceived. He is the image of the Father's conception of himself. When the Father conceives himself, that image, that being, is the Son. That's why he's one with the Father. Consubstantial. Okay? He's not made. He's one in being. The union between the two of them um, um, creates the Holy Spirit. The Eastern Church denies that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, filioque, the Son. It believes that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, I may sound like a stupid technicality, but the implications of it are profound. There can only be one, there can only be one Son issuing from the Father. The Father can only have one concept of itself. The Western Church is the union between the two that produces, that brings the Holy Spirit into existence. One of the implications that are dear to my heart when I first began to think about it, it hit me one day when I was at a lunch with some students in Magdalene, and it, it just overwhelmed me when I realized it. If you take away the Son, and, and so the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father only, not the Son, which is, our, you know, when we do the creed in our mass from, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Take the Son out of that so that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and you, you undermine, in a subtle way, the incarnating effect of Christ when he comes into the world. Look at Eastern art. Eastern art has stayed in the past forever. It's all iconic. Um, look at look at the Western Church. The Western the art of the Western Church has always moved forward. After the Renaissance, it moves in the direction of naturalism, to show things as they are: perspective, time, concreteness. All those things come into existence in the Western Church. Always have been there. Is that clear? Because I know that's an abstract. Is everybody following me on that? Are you? Was that the only major thing, or was there one other? Or that was the major theological thing. I really believe that the fundamental problem was political and ethnic. It was just okay. who is top dog, basically. right, in a large way. The whether the pope had primacy or not, or whether the um, the archdeacon—I can't remember the archbishop. The, yeah, but I'm losing the, the, not the archbishop, but the. But it was a, a question of primacy within the church. I mean, it was that was a serious. But that had always been there. That 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 itself couldn't have been the reason. I think it's an underlying reason more than people want to admit. But I'm really I'm, I don't want to. Did you all follow what I was saying about the filioque? The Western church. The Western church has always seen Christ coming into the world, so the church art should reflect something of his activity in the world while it makes us aware of another world. Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox art stays in a platonic geometric past. It's dealing with a geometric world. It doesn't fully accept naturalism. It doesn't come into the world. So if you look at the artwork of the Western Church and Eastern Church, it tells you a lot 
about an underlying theology. Is that clear? Is it? Okay. So there are fundamental strains between East and Western churches at this time, and tensions that are being played out in the Senate, between the Senate and the King. Okay, they're all there. Boethius is caught up in them, and as you know, he gets falsely accused and is sent to prison, and it's at that point that he writes this book. Now, the great themes of the Constellation. The fundamental theme at the heart of this work is this question of justice. And you, you know that that was the great theme for Plato. We've talked about it before, that the, the, the great gift of the ancient world, Jewish, religious, and philosophic, was justice. The spirit at the heart of the Old Testament is justice. The law of God handed down to Moses. The great accomplishment of the great pagans, Aristotle, Plato particularly, was justice. Remember, Plato believed that no man could be just to another man if he didn't order his own soul, if he didn't mind his own business. If he didn't work to become virtuous, he could not be just to another person. It was one of the great accomplishments of Plato. The great theme of this work is justice. An injustice has been done to this man and it forces him to ask these questions. If God is good, how could a good God allow injustices? How do we, how do we square that? How do we answer that problem? To begin to answer it, Lady Philosophy is going to say to Boethius, you've lost your way. She's, in, she's even going to say, and I'm going to come back to this because you probably overlooked it, but it's a, a major concern for the book. She said, um, you've got a condition of amnesia. You've forgotten who you are. That's not a small thing, and you'll see in a minute. It's not a small thing. She said, the problem with you is you don't know who you are anymore. If you had a sense of ends, you really understood your nature, you would not be going on as the way you are. It's only when a man understands his nature that he can deal with the difficulties in life. Because if he doesn't, he's going to be screwing himself up and other people, whatever his relationships are. If he does not know his nature, his beginnings, or his ends, he, he won't be able to deal with the situations in which he finds himself. So at the center of this book is this concern about our nature. What is our nature? What, what's our proper end? If we're not acting with that end in mind, we're in some ways undermining what we do. Um, and it's at that point, and this is going to become the focus of the last two books, particularly the fifth book, both the fourth and the fifth books, but particularly the fifth book. There's no way to understand our nature if we don't understand the nature of knowledge itself, how the mind knows. It's going to be huge for the whole book. And there are going to be two ways of looking at knowledge, and both of them imply the church in indirect ways. So even though Lady Philosophy is not theology, it's not the church, it's philosophy, the theory that she's putting forward actually speaks very directly to the church itself. The theory of anamnesis. Um to recall 
I'm going to have to go back to Plato. It's funny how we keep coming back to him, how important Plato and Aristotle are. Plato's theory of knowledge is that um, knowledge is a form of recollection. This very much influenced St. Augustine. St. Augustine, for the greater part of his life, was a Platonist. He had, he had to reconcile Christian thinking with Plato. Plato believed all knowledge is a form of recollection. Think about how that applies to the Divine Comedy, because remember when we were going up the Purgatorio? One of the major things I kept, we stressed for several weeks, trying to return to God is trying to recover what we lost. We once had a relation. This is so crucial. We once had a relationship with him. It changed the way we related to each other. The very way we beheld the world was like a form of beholding or wonder. No subject-object dichotomy. No I, you know, they. That subject-object dichotomy didn't exist. I thought Milton did it beautifully in Paradise Lost. Adam and Eve moved together until she... You know, Satan whispers in her ear. Um, um, the, the movement of purgatory was an effort to recover what we had lost. We talked about the importance of mimosine, memory. Remember that everything is there. To recover knowledge is to recover our memory of what we once had. In Eden with God. If we don't get straight in our ways of knowing, we won't get back to him. That's how important this is. So anamnesis means recovery. Now here's the trick. Plato believed that the soul was immortal. And to justify that, he, he had to um, posit um, the... Um, the principle of reincarnation. The soul keeps recycling through time. Otherwise, he couldn't make sense of the immortality of the soul. So he believed in reincarnation. Isn't that the word? Am I using it right? The re-entering re of the soul into the world and passing away. <clears> that <throat> so we once knew God, and the problem for all of us is recovering that knowledge. If we can't recover it, we will never do justice to our origins. So this principle of um, anamnes anamnesis is really important. Um, anaphora. You all know the word fora? Christophor. Christophor. Fora, bearer. Christ bearer. Christopher. Phedos, bearer. Christ bearer. Christophedos, Christopher. Anaphora means carrying back, carrying back. If my recollection is right, and I may, I may be going wrong with this, I think the Greek in the, the, in the Bible, in that particular verse where Christ is commemorating, the, when you're instituting the, in, the Eucharist, he says, do this in memory of me, to carry back, to be one with him, to hold on to him, going back. So when we receive the Eucharist, we carry him. We're back with him. Actually with him. Physically. The real presence. That's our belief. So these two notions of anamnesis and anaphora, one meaning rec to recollect, to, to recall what we've lost, 
anaphora to carry back, to make it real with us now, are both um, terms that Lady Philosophy uses in her efforts to try to heal Boethius. Lady Philosophy says the trouble with you is you're sick, that you've got amnesis, that you, you've actually lost your mind. And until you get straight on your ends, the way you understand things, the way you use your mind, you will not answer this problem that you're in. So these are, these are some of the, the most important themes of the whole work. Okay? Let me stop, and then, because I want to get into it. Um, yeah, right. Any questions before we go on? I got 1020. Is that right? Yeah. Any questions about any of this? It's funny how we keep going back to Plato so often and Aristotle. I think by now you should all probably, I've beaten it into you all, you should all know how important dead white men, kind of drives me nuts, take away them, our civilization will go. You know, these modern, particularly the feminists today, want to get rid of these, take these figures away on our foundations, gone. What, what they've given us is so extraordinary. I can't imagine a world... Um, this idea of the forms that we once knew God. Oh, by the way, here's St. Augustine on Plato. What Plato called the forms, these eternal forms that the mind grasps, those are the unchanging things. The, the, um, he believed that unless you knew the... Remember coming out of the cave? That we're caught in appearances, we're caught in the world of concrete reality. Until we can grasp those forms, we're still caught in the world of appearances, of shadows. That's the, that's the world um, Lady Philosophy is trying to get Boethius out of. She's trying to get him back to see the eternal things again. That's Plato. St. Augustine adapted it because he knew that Plato believed in reincarnation. And Augustine didn't. So his explanation, his adaptation of Plato was to say, it's not the forms outside of the cave. It's the ideas in God's mind. So what a Christian is grasping when he grasps those things are like the seminal ideas in God's mind. They're the ones that help us see the form. We're going to see this, by the way, when we do um, Hopkins next week. It'll become clear. Let me give an example just to make this concrete. Um, if, if you all had in front of you a eucalyptus tree and an oak tree, could you tell the difference? Mm -hmm. yes. I'm sure everybody... Yes? Okay, here's the here's the catcher on this here. Could you look, anybody, let's say an oak and a eucalyptus, could any of you look with your senses, the, the same senses that a cow uses, or a, we've been through this, or a dog, yeah? You're looking at an oak leaf. Could you look at an oak leaf and another oak leaf and another and articulate what the law was that made that oak an oak and different from a eucalyptus. What is that law, that form, right? Because our senses won't give it to us. Is everybody clear? A dog will see the same things. We've got senses. We look at an oak. We'd say three branches of oak. We'll say oak, oak, oak. But can you look at them and see its underlying form, what makes that oak different from a eucalyptus? Or if you look at the DNA... Wait, wait. For, what's the, the the mind has to grasp that? Could you do it, any of you? 
What's the law? What makes an oak an oak? A seed. Huh? The seed. What's its form? Could you describe it? I hope you're following. To do that means you have to go to the mind itself, what the mind grasps, what the senses can't. Because what the senses are giving us are the concrete features of those two trees, right? The mind has to grasp that. What, what people would call its species, its definition, its form. You can't understand Gerard Manley Hopkins when we get to him next week. Or most great poets, you, you know, Dante. All of them understood this stuff. That there is a sensible world, a world that's delivered to our senses, but there's also a super sensible world that we can come to grasp. C.S. Lewis, Dante, all of them. That we're not just stuck in a world of physical things. We've been saying that for years now together. So, what, um, what are those forms? Plato said they're these eternal things that St. Augustine knew that that was wrong but he wanted to save Plato because there was so much good in him he said those are the ideas the seminal ideas the, the archetypes of everything in existence the original source of them gone his creation all that he did that was principle to Dante in the Paradiso Dante's constantly talking about the forms the source of everything in the, in the in the planets, the the way they inter-influence each other, they all go back to God in his creation, what he did. So, so Boethius is fundamental here. Let me stop, and because I want to look at the book. Any any questions about particularly this notion of anamnesis or anaphora? Well, in both cases you were talking about remembrance. So, well, I wasn't sure wait, wait, I understood no, no, not that, talking, hold on. But you actually, used that word in both. Right. I'm actually, in both cases, I'm going back. What, and, and they both involve, carrying back doesn't explicitly deal with it, but it implies it. But sorry, so go ahead. So go ahead. So I want to know the difference. I mean, I'm not sure. I understood what you said, but when it ended, I felt like it was saying very much the same kind of thing. This deals explicitly with memory, mimesis. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand the roots of the word. I know, I want, but I just want for your... So we have to do it on our own versus having somebody help? Is that the no, big difference? No, hold on, wait. You all remember Mosine? Every epic begins with the epic poet invoking Calliope. Mimosine, remember all the nine muses were products of a mating between Zeus and Mimosine, this kind of cosmic memory. Behind the whole epic world was this understanding that there once was this golden age, this something great, and the poet is attempting to call in the muses for help to recover something of this greatness that man has, every epic. So the word Mimosine means memory. Anna goes back, so recalling back, recollecting. So this deals explicitly with memory. This doesn't. Fora means carry. It means carry back. But, in, but implicitly, um, it implies a memory to go back. 
I have to check it. I, I think that's the word Christ used when he said, do this in memory of me. So would you say one involves memory and the other one has to do with physical? It more One is explicitly with memory. One is explicitly involving a physical act. act. And the reason this is so important for me is because, in a sense, it implies the church in the Eucharist. When Christ said, do this in memory of me, we're actually physically involved in an act of carrying back, keeping, holding him within us going back. So it's not just an intellectual act. No, no. It, it involves the body to carry back. So when you receive the Eucharist, you are going back with God, as he said, do this in memory of me. Yeah, it's a good way. And remember, I've been, God, I'm so glad. God, this stuff amazes me. I just think what we're, you remember how often when we were doing Elliot, we kept talking about Eliot's paradoxes. Where, I can't tell you where. In my beginning was my end. Um, the still point, you're here, there. I can't tell you where. To put it there is to put it in time. And, and I used the example, I know often, when I said, we take the Eucharist and we go out in the parking lot. We're walking to our car. Where are we? We've just received the Eucharist. Our understanding is we're we're with God in His kingdom. Then, the kingdom is around us. I remember saying this distinctly because it just blows me away to think this way. And Elliot uses it all the time. Where are we? When we do, do we get to a point where we take the Eucharist for granted? We're on our way to car. Yep. Back to work. Yep. Back to work, and work shuts it out. Where are the the poets? Elliot. I mean, I just. So grateful for people like this. Eliot takes us out of that. He's, I mean, the way that he presents this world is to make it apparent, uh, helps us to feel that we're here and there. Where are we? How do we even describe that? If you've got, to, and how do you even begin to explain that to a coworker who has no clue about this stuff? Is that so? Caring physically, so we're not in our heads. We're not in a Platonic world. It's incarnated. Christ is in us. The real presence is there. It cannot leave us the same. Or we're not, or we haven't entered into an act of faith, I think, with him. I think it's unfortunate that, and this is my own personal opinion, that the majority of people don't think that way. Right. It's just an act that they do. They take the Eucharist to walk back. The minds are on leaving church to go to a you know. Yeah. So, and I've been guilty of that, so I'm not. No, all of us are, David. I'm sure all of us are. Or I'm speaking for myself. And well, here, this I forgot. I'm so glad you said that. One of the things I wanted to say in those opening comments about the Stoicism and the easy read that this isn't literature, although there's an aspect to it. Remember when we first began the um, the Protestant Catholic? I began by saying we've got three worlds. You've got um, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. You've got three different worlds resting on three different beliefs. For two of them, that's why I get really upset when somebody says, the Pope said this, I wanted to have the Pope's ear. He said, we all worship the same God. We don't worship the same God. Our God's a Trinitarian God. Islam has no notion of the Trinity. If you've gone through the Koran, and I have, they explicitly say it's the way the Eastern mind works. There's one God. 
This is that Eastern mind. They want to protect the Father, absolute power of the Father. We've got an incarnating God. For us, the Son came down, emptied Himself, left it, came down, and took on our nature, goes back. We believe in a Trinitarian God, not an isolated. Milton, we went through this. Milton believes God is isolated. He even says that. Um, Islam believes in Allah. He's a solitary. He's out in the desert alone. The Jews believe in Yahweh alone. Christians believe in a Trinity communal. According to Christians, we were made in his image. We were made to love God and be loved. To know and be known. That's the principle of the Trinity. They absolutely indwell in each other. That's why I made such a point of moving up purgatory is meant to help us recover that indwelling. That we're one with another. That we're not stand here, you did this. You know, that, that we're meant to, to overcome that struggle to grow to become one in community, not isolated, not alone. So, sorry, so we've got Islam, Judaism, Christianity. How does anybody, what, what does anybody do? Take any of those examples. If anybody, anybody from any of the other religions were ch to challenge one of them, what would the typical response be? Try to persuade somebody who's Islamic to change his religion. What's going to happen? Try to change somebody who's Jewish. Try to change somebody who's Christian. One of the points that I made when we first started is the Christian Middle Ages were largely unreflective. They just inherited their faith. They practiced it because they grew up in it. How many of them reflected on it? I can't think of this class with, I mean, the dominant thought in my mind is, I'm amazed at you guys, because <laughs> for whatever insane reasons you keep coming back, you're reflecting on your religion. You should be able to give a defense now that I'm assuming you wouldn't have been able to make two years ago. Do any of them, do any of those religions have built into their faith a self-reflective element? Yes, Christianity does. The whole Middle Ages were philosophic. One of the things the Protestant mind did in its simpleness, it believed that philosophy had corrupted it. They wanted to go back to a simple church. Do away with Aristotle. Luther hated Aristotle. Um... We, it, the, here's the value of Plato if you've read the Republic or any of the dialogues you know that what Plato does in every one of them is force somebody to reflect on what they think they know to be able to give an answer because if you can't give an answer you're living in a world of opinion not knowledge doxa, opinion, not knowledge Lady Philosophy is making it clear unless you recover a proper sense of what you know You'll never, you'll never recover the health that you've lost. If we don't learn to question our beliefs, trusting that they will lead us to the truth, we're in a sad state. We're living in this state of amnesia, thinking we know everything when we don't. I'm going back to David's point. How many of us, I mean, it's been a part of my left because I, I left Greek Orthodoxy. I mean, but how many of us growing up in a faith question our faith? Seriously question it. 
I know. I, I mean, I hear you know you hear people say cradle Catholic, and I mean, I think part of what gets covered in that is that I've accepted it all my life. But you know, what goes on in our education today to help people question their beliefs? Islamic, Jewish, Christian. The value of Christianity. This is so stunning. If you look at Aristotle and Plato, everything that they this is four hundred years before Christ. 400 years before Christ. If you look at the principles of their beliefs, in so many respects, they anticipate Christianity and they conform with it. They, they make it possible to understand things about a faith. Take them away and you're just left in a world of faith by itself. John Paul's book, Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason. Our faith, I've said this before, our faith is a great strength, support to our our, our reason is a great support to our faith. And I made the point a couple of weeks ago, look at what reason can do to destroy faith. How badly people use reason in their faith. The, the killings that are justified, terrorists. I mean, watch the mind of somebody using reason to justify faith. Faith and reason should come together. In Christianity, it's got this great help because we've got this rich philosophic tradition that corresponds to the development <coughs> of our faith historically over time. Actually, it's what we've been doing together for a couple of years. Sorry, getting off. Any questions here? Sorry. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Any questions? I don't think it's a question, but I think you... Um, don't give yourself enough credit for what you bring to the words because if I were just reading definitions and stuff and reading all this and you weren't up there talking, I would probably understand a third of it. It's true for all of us. Because too. what you bring yeah. is is a depth of information, a depth of knowledge and, and, a, and a feeling of a commitment that makes it be alive versus just reading a sentence. Thank you for That's that. That's very powerful. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, let's look, let's look at Boethius. I'm just going to look at a couple of things to set out some major points here. The real, I mean, the everything is leading to next week and what he's going to do. I don't know if you want that done. Turn to the opening, first pages. I love these opening pages. Page three, first first section. Remember, Boethi remember, there's two Boethiuses here, just like there was for Dante, right? There's Boethius, the writer, who's writing about Boethius, the natural man. Hold on, I want your attention on this. Remember the ironies in Dante. Dante, there's two Dantes. There's the there's the journeyer who took this journey. And the poet who writes once the journeyer comes back. He's going to write about what happened. What that makes possible is an ironic distance. Dante can stand outside of himself being ironic. He can make fun of himself. He can present himself weeping and crying and passing out. You know, he has a sense. How important that is, how important that is for our efforts to understand ourselves. I, I'm trusting everybody knows that. if we don't learn to step outside of ourselves, how do we learn to look at ourselves and understand? How do we learn to reflect? To go back to what I was just saying a minute ago, this act of reflection, questioning our beliefs, 
To do that means standing outside of ourselves. <clears throat> when he begins, <clears throat> I who once wrote songs with joyful zeal and driven by grief to enter weeping mode. God. That's a dressed up way of saying, I'm about to feel sorry for myself. Give me a beer. Could have done this at a bar, not in jail. Yes? <laughs> and have a drinking buddy next to him. See the muses, cheeks all torn, dictate and wet my face with elegiac ver- Oh, it's their faults. Um, go down. And I, a worn out bone bag, hung, hung with flesh. Death would be a blessing if it's... How many of us... I mean, I know we've been in periods of self-pity where we say death would be a blessing. No, somebody kill me. Um... His hands refused to close for weeping eyes, while with success false fortune favored me. One hour of sadness could not have shown, um, thrown me down. Um, foolish the friends who called me happy then, for falling shows a man stood insecure. He's beginning to see that part of his problem, we're going to have to come back to this term, part of his problem was trusting too much in fortune. What this term means is really crucial to this whole book. Suddenly this figure appears, it's Lady Philosophy, and on page four, he describes her as reaching the sky, so having this great amplitude, and also being close to the earth, as if she's familiar. Those of you who've done Dante, remember at the very opening when Dante got chased back by the beast? Suddenly he saw this faint shade approaching, and he said um, it, it, had grown, it had grown faint from um, neglect. Who was it? Virgil. It was another way of saying people don't read Virgil anymore. And yet that's exactly what Dante needed. Philosophies like that, top of the page, yet she possessed a vivid color and undiminished vigor. It was difficult to be sure of her height, for sometimes she was average human size, while at other times she seemed to touch the very sky with the top of her head. And when she lifted herself even higher, she pierced it and was lost to human sight. It's clear that this is, she's allegoric, metaphorically, an image <clears throat> of something that's both transcendent and human. It resonates with ideas of an incarnation. She pierces the heaven. She has a transcendent element, but she's also very familiar. She's right there in front of him. Her clothes are made of imperishable material of the finest thread woven and the most delicate skill. Later she told me that she'd made them with her own hands. Their splendor, however, was obscured by a kind of film as of long neglect, like statues covered in dust. Who reads these dead white nails today? God! Sorry, I've got to... We do. <laughs> I have to do everything I can to restrain myself moments like this. She goes on to say that, um, that when Boethius was young, she taught him, and he's forgotten her, and more of us should say there was a time historically when Stoicism and Epicureanism replaced her. So false forms of philosophy took her place. Those of you, <laughs> David will know because he was there, but um, in the evening group, one of the women, um, Marcy, put together this bibliography. Look here, it's just, it's look at the back page. It's four pages like this. I mean, of all these citations of philosophers, she wanted this as a reference. Take a look. This is the moderns. Look here, the moderns. 
half a page, I mean, sorry, the ancients, half a page. From that page forward, these are moderns. I mean, the question that I want to ask when I look, she just said, I was replaced by Stoicism and Epicureanism. How many branches of philosophy have since taken over philosophy? And more importantly, how many philosophers today actually live philosophy the way Plato and Aristotle did? Because they didn't just teach, they lived it. Socrates was killed. He wasn't killed because he gave these nice entertaining lectures. It's because he lived what he was doing. How many philosophers teaching in academia today fully commit themselves to what they're teaching? Live it in their lives at the risk of dying? Very few. What they do is they're teaching a concept. Yep. So um, she says, um, bottom page four. At the sight of the muses of poetry at my bedside, dictating words to accompany my tears, she became angry. Here's a righteous anger, it's appropriate. Who, she demanded, her piercing eyes alight with fire, has allowed these hysterical sluts to approach this sick man's bedside. Whoa. This is going to be the beginning of her healing. The first thing, <laughs> first thing she's got to do is get rid of poetry. <laughs> oh, God. Am I safe right now? I read that when I, I laughed when I read that part. <laughs> is, that, is that what poetry is like? <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. I, um, the only thing I can say is, have you guys been fully aware of what I've been doing with you for the last three days? <laughs> it scares me to think about this right now. Um, she will say that what's wrong on page nine is that he's given too much to his emotions, that he's let things affect his feelings more than they should have, and that because he's done this, it, it's led to the state that he's in right now where he's overwhelmed with his emotions. Page uh, eight. Let men compose themselves and live at peace, set haughty fate beneath their feet, and look unmoved on fortune, good or bad, and keep unchanging continence. That is absolute pure stoicism. It's British. By the way, British students are stiff upper lip, keep control of yourself. The British live this. That stoic element is so much part of the British character. Stiff upper lip, keep your composure stick. Look unmoved on fortune, good and bad, and keep unchanging continence. Unmoved, they'll stand before the ocean's rage, which churns up waves from deep below. Unmoved by restless mount, vesuvius, her furnace burns in haunting flames. Go down, top of page nine. If first you rid yourself of hope and fear, you have disarmed the tyrant's wrath. But whosoever quakens in fear or hope, drifting and losing mastery, has cast away his shield, has left his place, and binds the chain with which he was bound. This is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm regretting the word fear, I, I mean hope. I, I don't know if it means desires or longing or wishing, because I think of hope in purely theological terms. But what he's saying basically is so long as you have emotions like fear or hope, you're susceptible. Because what's going to happen if you don't get what you hope for? You're going to be disappointed, frustrated. So what? It, this is pure stoicism. It's saying, 
The answer to your problem is denying your emotions. Put them away. Now hold on to that because this is not a small matter for this whole thing. Do you understand this, she went on, and have my words penetrated? I mean, you know sometimes you're talking to people and you want to crack them in the head and say, are you listening? Do you hear? She's saying right now to Boethius, are you really listening? I, bet you, I can picture wanting to take his throat and throttle it. Or are you like the proverbial donkey, deaf to the liar? By the way, Chaucer's going to use that same metaphor when we get to him. On page 10. You and God who sowed in you the minds of wise men are my witnesses that the only consideration to impel me to any office was a general desire for good. Now hold on to this, because this seems really noble. <coughs> this was the reason why I had no alternative but grimly to resist evil, <coughs> and why in the struggle to defend justice I have always been indifferent to the hatred I inspired in men who wielded greater power than me. You get a sense of why some of the people in the Senate wanted to get rid of him. He was a a very virtuous man, a man of real integrity. He took on covers, um, comers, <clears throat> but it also created animosities. And some of them were directed to him. People falsified these charges and he's in jail. But look at this thing. Any irony to this? The only consideration to avail me to my office was a general desire for good. This was the reason why I had no alternative but grimly to resist evil. Any ironies here? between Boethius the writer and Boethius the natural man. He didn't care what people thought. He was there because he wanted to do good. He wanted justice. He believed in it so strongly. Justice was a compelling motive for everything he did in his life. What's the problem here? There's a problem. If he really did it truly for justice, by the way, this is this is Socrates. If you've read this, if you read the Socratic dialogues, you'll see in the um, in the fate, the Phaedo, all of Socrates' follows, followers come to him in the jail. They visit him and try to persuade him to leave. They're saying this is an unfair justice. You shouldn't stay here. Socrates says, I can't run away. The state's given me everything I have. I'm going to die. He's at peace. He's not complaining. He's not whining. What's the irony here? The only consideration to appeal me to any office was a general desire for good. Well, because now he's complaining at the results of that. Yes. I mean, I hope you hear it. It's a very subtle irony, but it's true because on, the, on one level, he's presenting himself as a very virtuous man. He clearly is. But right now he's feeling sorry for himself, and I don't think he sees very clearly that his passions are really blinding him. He doesn't see it. Philosophy's going to tell him as much. In the next several late pages, he, page 10, 11, 12, these, he, he goes over the details of the tension between the Senate and the king. Um, page 11, 13, I'm not going to go into it, but he says, how in his eagerness to see the total destruction of the Senate, the king tried to extend the charge to them all in spite of the universal innocence. <clears throat> These tensions grew. Boethius took the side of the Senate to, to claim that it was innocent of any charges. Um, on page 14, we get closer to the crux of it. <clears throat> he says at the bottom, it will always be the unfortunate who are first to be 
deserted by the goodwill of men. Men can seem to be your friends, but as soon as you get into trouble and they have to risk themselves, they leave. The bottom of 14, I seem to see the wicked haunts of criminals overflowing with happiness and joy. I seem to see all the most desperate of men threatening new false denunciations. I seem to see good men lying prostrate with fear at the danger I'm in while all abandoned villains are encouraged to tempt every crime in the expectation of impunity. What he's witnessing is the general corruption that followed what happened because these men condemned him. Other men were, this is so like what happened to Thomas More. Mm -hmm. um, um, some men objected to him, but, but all of them came in. Um, they stand where they are benefiting. They're not going to risk their lives. His life is in danger. Um, now stop, because just before we go any further, because she's, she's going to really lay into him in a minute. Um, before we go any farther, I think it's really important to just see one thing about these opening pages. The opening of the Constellation shows Boethius in jail feeling sorry for himself. Lady Philosophy comes. She's described as this allegorical figure. I think it's really important at this point to be aware of what we've talked about before, of the levels of meaning to a work. Lady Philosophy comes. It's clear she's allegorical. She, tower, she pierces the heavens. So she's part of the heavens. She's got her feet on the ground. Um, I think in some sense it's important for us to, to see an allegorical aspect to this opening. What Boethius is showing us is that any time any one of us is in trouble, when, um, when we're overcome with self-pity, when things go bad, when we lose something or something's going wrong, um, there's, no, there's no way in which any of us will enter into that darkness, no matter how dark it is, without there being something to come help. It's absolutely crucial to see that. Remember the term that we used when we did C.S. Eliot's um, To We Have Faces? The um, naturalite Christiana animus, the natural Christian soul. Naturalite Christiana animus, the naturally Christian soul. Psyche was an image of the natural, of, Psyche is the image of Christ in every single human being. Remember when we went up the um, the Paradiso, Dante was beginning to see Christ everywhere. He saw her image in Veronica's veil. He, his description of Mary, he could even see Christ in Mary. How could it not be? I made this point then. The closer we get to our ends, if Christ was the means of creation, that's our belief, the word, he created things, we're made in the image of God, then he's at the center of every one of us. Even when we mar, even when we mar that image, when we sin, our sins are against him. That's our cross. One of the most important, I believe this to my heart, one of the most important things we can always do for ourselves is admit our sins, see them for how awful they are, because in that moment we know that the light of Christ is shining on us. So one of the most important things to see about this opening is, even though he's presented as long, we've got this allegorical figure, it's important to see that what he, allegorically, what he's doing is showing us, in the midst of all this darkness, there is this light. If we're made in the image of God, how can it not be? 
So, and I, I, I'm sure we all had this experience. I mean, we will grieve and we, lights come to us. And I'm sure the whore or the sluts chase them off. All these passions that we have for the world while we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Something behind that is making this clear to us. And what Lady Philosophy is saying is the problem with you is it's not what the Senate did. It's what you're doing to yourself right now. She's going to say that in a moment. But the important thing to see right now is at an allegorical level, something's being given to him, this light that's being offered to help heal him. God is not going to abandon anybody, no matter how difficult, whatever. We can be facing death. Our belief is that's taking us to a cross. Christ is there. There, Somewhere in us, we have to take a hope, a joy. It's, it's actually, it's one of the reasons we're going to do the Hopkins poem, the Wreck of the Dutchland, because that's what he's doing all the way through. It's so stunning that way. Turn to page 16. <clears throat> he's continuing to feel sorry for himself. Page 16. Um, she turns to him and says, The moment I saw your sad and tear-stained looks, they told me that you had been reduced to the, mis- to the misery of banishment. But here's what's so important. But unless you had told me, I would not, still not have known how far you had been banished. However, it's not simply a case of your being, having been banished far from your home. You have wandered away yourself, or if you prefer to be thought of as having been banished, it is you yourself that have been the instrument of it. No one else could have done it. For if you remember the country you came from, it's not governed by a majority rule. Whatever, remember, Whatever he thinks, whatever these people, he did not go into politics for himself. He went into it to do justice. That's the irony of that passage. It's like a mother or father saying, um, see how much good I've done for you? This is what you show me. I mean, whenever any parent says that, you know the last thing on their mind is that child. They're feeling sorry for themselves. Um, Boethius has something of that here. And she's saying... Um, it's you yourself that have been the instrument of it. No one else could have ever done it. For if you remember, here it is, Mimicene, if you remember the country you came from, it is not governed by majority rule like Athens of old, but, a, but if I may quote, one is Lord and one is King. We're, we're talking, this is Plato. Each one of us is supposed to be priest, prophet, king. When Dante came to the top of the purgatory, Virgil said, I crown and mitre you, King Bishop. He was Lord of himself. His words were, do what you will, to not do it is wrong. St. Augustine, love and do what you will. Whatever you do will be okay, because you're Lord of yourself. God wants us, every one of us, to be free. To, to, to put our sins away, to get them out of the way, so we can be one with him to love freely, which is our end, our nature. It's where we're supposed to go. Um, Peach, um, go to 23. I'm just going to skip forward and read a couple of passages, and then I want to stop for the day. So at this point, Lady Philosophy has made clear 
<coughs> that his, his problem is being too much indulgent in his emotions by literature, that he's given himself too much to his feelings, he's got to learn to control them. She makes, she uses the word, you've got amnesia, you've lost, you no longer recall who you are. The only way <coughs> I can heal you is help you to recover a sense of who you were. So he's got to deal with who he is, who he once was, what his nature is, what his end is. If he doesn't know his end, if he, that is, if he doesn't have real knowledge of himself, he'll continue in this lost condition. And it's interesting to watch her work as a, as a doctor, because she says in the beginning, you all know, to begin with, I have to use these mild medicines, because you're, you're not ready yet for tougher stuff. I mean, it's pretty tough in my mind to say, you yourself are the problem. If you're going to fix this, you, people haven't banished you, you've banished yourself. It's already getting tough. So even though she says, I'm going to use mild medicines, she's already getting, she's not going to let him off. I mean, but gradually as she goes along, the whole journey is that she's going to get tougher and tougher if she's going to help him recover his health. This anaphora to carry back, to get back to what's real. Um, in book two, she basically says, top of 25, I will willingly concede that what you are seeking to regain really did belong to you. When nature brought you forth from your mother's womb, I received you naked and devoid of everything and fed you from my own resources. I was inclined to favor you, and I brought you up. Now I've decided to withdraw my hand. You have been receiving a favor as one who has had the use of another's possessions, and you have no right to complain as if what you have lost was fully your own. Is everybody following this? From dust to dust. We came into the world with nothing. Why, why do we complain so bitterly? bitterly? <laughs> what, can we take it with us? All the, all the ancient poets or, and philosophers made this clear. The only thing we can take with us is ourselves. Christ makes it clear. Lay up your treasures not on earth. They're not going to go with us. What's going to go with us are characters. We either become virtuous and carry that with us, the goodness, the goodness with us, or we take the other, whatever we put in its place. It's here, she says, page 26, she says, it wouldn't matter if I gave you all these things anyway. If plenty from her well-stocked horn with generous hands should distribute as many gifts as grains of sand the sea churns up when strong winds blow, or stars that sign. These, by the way, that's biblical. I mean, that is, that's Ab God saying to Abraham, I will make you, you know, um, the ruler of many nations and the sands and the sea and the stars. The human race would still repeat its quarrelous complaint. If I gave you everything, you'd still complain. Why is that so? Or maybe you disagree with Lady Philosophy. No, but I think you have a tendency to say to yourself, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than being, you know, in prison and all that stuff I've done that's good. I deserve better than this. Even if we're, hmm? even if we're fortunate, we have an infinite longing. Yeah. Remember, when I said this before, if God made us for himself, we have an infinite longing, an infinite desire. 
There's only one object that can satisfy that desire. So no matter how much wealth that we acquire in this world, it will never be enough. We will always want more. And the corollary of that is, once you acquire all of this wealth, what happens to the state of your soul? Are you going to be at peace? Will you rest content? Or are you going to be anxious or worrisome about what might happen cause you to lose it? I mean, people get very wealthy. I mean, you know if they lose it, often they take their lives. I mean, they don't know what to do. They're so do, um, the, the people vest their themselves in what they acquire so much. Every Easter we begin um, Ash Wednesday with from dust to dust. You know, um, um, so now she's got to apply more serious treatments. She says in the bottom of 26, no rains will serve to hold in check the headlong course of appetite once such largesse has banned the flames of lust to have and hold. Once we want things and start giving things, how easy it is to let go. It's at this point that she's going to take up um, the nature of man. She says, 30, if you're no longer um, dissatisfied with the whole of your fortune, we have made little progress, she said, but I can't put up with your dilly-dallying. And the this is, I think we call this a drama queen. This, the, the, the way you over-emotionalize things to make your point. The dramatization of your careworn, grief-stricken complaints that something is lacking from your happiness. No man is so completely happy that something somewhere does not clash with his condition. It's the nature of human affairs to be fraught with anxiety. They never, have, they never prosper perfectly and they never remain constant. We will always hold on to anxiety so, so long as we make worldly goods the be-all and end-all of our life. It's at this point that she asks this question, what's our nature? What constitutes our happiness? What constitutes our happiness? And it's here that she will say um, that most people think of happiness as possessing money or fame or office <coughs> or power. And she answers every one of those. I want to just briefly, because we're close to them. What's wrong with every one of those things as a, as a source of anxiety for man? Why? What's the short... Oh, one of the questions she asks, which is crucial to, to where she's going. She says, is there any intrinsic worth to wealth? Or you can lose it. Right, but in itself, is wealth itself money? Is money inherent? Does money have an inherent good to it? It's just a convention. It, it, it facilitates transactions. It has no inherent wealth, no inherent good. So her question is, if something doesn't have an inherent good in it, why would you go after it? Because you can lose it. It doesn't have a value in itself. So she takes each one of those things that, that are the dominant motivations for most people and dispels them. That is, she's beginning to cure him. The problem with money is you can lose it. And it has no inherent wealth. It's, um, it's what you do with it that matters. What about um, fame? Fleeting. Explain it, Bill. Well, it, it, it depends on, on others' perception of you. And it is fleeting. <laughs> yeah. On, on your looks, your wealth, 
you know, what have you, well, how others perceive you. Yeah. But therein lies the problem. Yeah, and, and once again, if it's not intrinsic, if it depends on what others, how others see you, it can be taken away. They can change. It's also hmm? limited to certain groups of people or regions. Yeah, it's whatever she says, and it changes from region to region. Some like people, a some baseball player, is meaningless to people who's not interested in baseball. Right, right, right. Oh, think about God! It just it so distresses me. Baseball player in America gets five million dollars and whines because somebody else is getting eight million dollars. Mm-hmm. What do you think people in India would think about that kind of honor? It would be appalled. Well, I, yeah, well, I would hope so. I'm not, but I mean, how ridiculous! Her image, she said, fame, remember when we think about fame, that if you look at this this thing called fame in the context of the universe or this larger globe, how significant is your, because our egos get so blown up, how significant is your ego when you set that fame in the context of this great universe and you're just a speck? So she demolishes that. What about office or power? Let's, let's take office. Clearly, you can lose that. I mean, two. And the grave danger she goes, she uses to illustrate her point is, there are all these tyrants who had all this <clears> power <throat> in office, and they developed all these enemies because people didn't like the authority they had or the way they used it. So these peoples who who were identified with these offices, they're become victims of people who take them over. So offices, um, illusory and fleeting, you know, like these other things. What about power? I think that's the most insidious of all of them. Say it, David. I said I think it's the most insidious of all of them. Go ahead. Because I think it it takes you to a place of almost being like you're untouchable. Nobody can get you because you have all this power and thought. And I'm I'm looking at these people uh, like him who got in a position of, you know, greatness or what you know power and he thought he could never fall yep yep you can't read shakespeare plays without seeing i mean watch him deal with any of it's interesting that shakespeare almost always take um, great people political figures not always (coughs) so many of his works because he knows the way to the way to illustrate something is to take its greatest example because then you can see it more clearly watch a king who's got all this power deal with it um, it's not always the case, but it, it's not an accident. Um, yeah, if um, power is such a fleeting thing again, and the, I, I, I'm so glad the way you put it. How did you put it? Most insidious. It's insidious. The most of all of them. Explain why it's insidious. Well, David. because it, I think it's in your mind that you're in a position that you can't be overwhelmed or overcome, or somebody yeah. can take you down. Yeah. I mean, you look at all the movies we see, that the people with the power, it's not just their money and stuff, it's that they see themselves, you know, way above, they're unreproachable. Yeah, how blind. Oh yeah. How yeah. blind too. The yeah. other thing is, power <coughs> putting others down. I mean, fame you're getting from others and it can mm-hmm. go away, but, but in power you're actively being powerful over yeah. others, yeah. and that seems to me to also be yeah. 
Yeah, so true. Worse, different in some way. People are objects. Um, there are a few good kings in history. I think St. Louis in the 14th was one of the most extraordinary kings who's ever lived, and he's rare. Plato made that clear in the Republic. If, if he had a choice, he'd say the monarchy would be the best regime, but it's so rare to get a good monarch. His idea was the philosophic king. How often do you get a king in office who's who's philosophic in the in the Socratic sense? That is, who serves. Solomon. So, so I mean, that's, that's just it was coming. In. I mean, we get that in Dante that that God thought of Solomon that way. That I mean, even though Solomon lost it at some point, but how well does anybody rule in a family, in a business? in an organization, in a country, you know, it is what motivates the person's <coughs> rule serving so that the authority that he has is for the good of others. That's Aristotle's ideal and Plato's that there's nothing that we do, and that doesn't always be, mean being nice, because sometimes the good of another is something another doesn't want, um, but for anybody who's concerned about virtue, remember that was the end, we there's nothing for Plato, Socrates. These it, Plato said it was more important to suffer before we cause suffering for another. But if we were going to be just to another, we had we had to work for the good of another human being. And I I'm trusting that everybody knows how hard that is, because lots of people think they're already good and don't need to hear anything. And we know that that's not always true. So she demolishes all these virtues. Okay. And the question that we're left with going into the third and fourth, or the last half of the um, the consolation is: um, Can sh what happens when we love anything that's not intrinsically good and sufficient in itself? Because if we love something that's dependent on something else, we can't depend on it. It'll be one of those aspects of fortune. When it's lost, we will grieve. So two of the most important principles right now are whether something is intrinsic has an intrinsic good in itself because if we pursue things that aren't intrinsically good we're deceiving ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the other is um, can we be happy? Can our happiness rest on something that's not sufficient in itself that has its own intrinsic good in itself? Because if we place our happiness in these other things, and we've, we've seen they're all fleeting, they're all transitory, and they're futile, and in some ways, um, what's the word? Insidious. It's the ring. It's this thing we have, the ring that shows people walk up to your door, and periodically, oh, it, goes up. it goes on. <laughs> anyway, those two things, okay? She's making it clear, if, if, if the... If the natural end of man is the good and happiness, then he's got to get clear on the ways in which he deceives himself. Boethius thought of it, I love that line, he thought of himself as a virtuous man. He says, I only went into politics to do good for other people. If that were true, completely true, he'd be like Socrates. He would have nothing to complain about when things went bad. Because if he was there for the good completely, it might have asked his life, as it did for Socrates, as it did for Christ, as it did for Thomas More, as it's doing for Boethius. If we're doing it for something else, then we're fooling ourselves because there's 
We're attaching ourselves to things that are going to let us down. We're living in an illusion because of the things that we want, whether we admit it or not. So right now is a turning point in the book. She's dealing with these questions. What's our natural end of, of happiness? If we're meant to be happy, what does, in what does that happiness consist? Um, we, we, it can't consist of power or office or fame or wealth. Then in what does it consist? What should we be, what's our end? What should we be living for in the way we do anything? That's where we are. Four and five are crucial. Four, it, it, by the way, it goes to this question of power. I, I so like what David and Sue said. N let me put a question before we leave here. If an evil man wanted to do an evil act and a good man wanted to do a good act, um, would they both have the same power? If you've been reading closely, you know the answer to that. If a, are are good and evil opposites? Philosophically, yes. They are opposites, just not in our heads. Not philosophically, good and evil are opposites, or 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 it's something like that. She makes the point that they're opposites. If if um, Good is inherently good. For evil to be real, it means a privation. It's a loss of goodness. So if a man wanted to do an evil act and a virtuous man wanted to do a good act, would they be equal in the power of their wills to exercise those acts? Let me put it differently. Once, once a man, I'm thinking, about it, I'm thinking about my own struggles with my own sins, if, if, if you had sins, if you were an alcoholic and you couldn't do without drinking or you were a drug addict or, or, or if you were a man, let's say, who, who made his fortune manipulating people, how easy, it, how easy would it be for any of those people to do a good act that was good in itself? Would he have the power to do it? If you're a virtuous man who practices virtue... Um, what would be the difference between your two wills? I hope you see where this is going. Because what she's going to argue is that while the evil man thinks he has power, because the evil men think, look at all that I've acquired. We, I mean, you have wealth, power, office, all those things. Um, she's going to answer this in a really amazing way in, in book five, but that person thinks he's got power. How strong would he be in doing a good act if he had to? It, wouldn't it be much harder for him to do it than for a man who practiced virtue his life, for whom it became more natural, say? So if you're looking at the relative strength of will involved and relate them to good or evil, the, the object, what we're, the motives behind what we're doing, you get a very different picture of what we call power. Because in one sense, she's arguing, one man may think he has power, when in a sense he doesn't, he really lacks it. Um, here's, the, here's where the paradox goes, I mean, to push this as far as I can. Christ was God. He was omnipotent, all-powerful. He accepted limits on himself when he took on our nature. He allowed himself to be killed. 
What does that say about the virtue that we've been called to? Aristotle said we can become virtuous. I believe in the natural order we can. We can become naturally virtuous. Can we perfect ourselves in a supernatural virtue, in the love that Christ calls us to, without a death? Let me leave it there. There was a movie years ago called Dallas. And I don't know if anybody ever saw it. it, was, it was, uh, Larry Hagman was the actor, and it was J.R. Ewing. And that was a series. Yeah, the movie or the series? Yeah. Movie, yeah. And it was up in North Dallas that they filmed it, and it was all about power. Oh, yeah. I don't know if remembers that. Um, I mean, Game of Thrones? Yeah. Is there anything? I mean, it just stuff drives me nuts. It's just. And the real, the real question is what they do with power and how the yeah. movie people treat it. Oh, yeah. Okay, you all have a good week. Thank you. We're, we'll finish Boethius next week. Book five is a, is a great, amazing book in so many ways. Can anybody bring something next week? If, they can't, if nobody can, I will. I can. You just brought. I might not be here because we're closing. Oh. So, um, I'll bring I can, something. I haven't I brought it in a long time. Okay. I'll, I'll bring it. Okay. I can do something next week. Okay. Okay. The fruit. I'll bring it. Who brought the fruit? I'll bring it.